Well, for most of us, when we were young, our parents probably said things to us like, you'll understand when you get older. Or, when you're a parent, you'll know why I did the things the way I did. Well, I'm a parent now, and I love to ask my kids uh, questions, and my kids love to ask me questions. And the more they ask questions, the more I realize that some things are hard to explain, and some things are hard for them to understand. Kind of talked about this in the children's sermon. Those of you with young kids can probably relate to this, or if you've spent time around young kids. And just like our parents did to us, we find ourselves saying things like, one day you'll understand. Or we long for the day when our kids get to that age where we can have more meaningful conversations with them, where they start to get it, where the light starts to go on for them. And today in our passage of scripture, we're going to see a conversation between Jesus and his disciples that fits into this category of one day you'll understand, where he points them forward to the day of Pentecost and to the coming of the Holy Spirit. I want us to see this morning the significance of these words for Jesus' small band of disciples, for them, and then for the early church, and then for us today as we sit here 2,000 years later. The disciples, as you know if you've read the Gospels, were often slow to understand and they were quick to forget the things that Jesus told them. But we often find ourselves in that same position today, don't we? We're slow to understand. We read God's word, but we're slow to understand. We're quick to forget the things that we may have just read even hours earlier. My prayer this morning is that the Lord would teach us as we go to the scriptures, as we go to his word, that he would teach us to bring to remembrance the things that he has showed us and the promises that he has given us. Let's go to our text, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, and as we come this morning, we ask that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be reminded of the promise that you have given us, the promises in your word to be with us forever, to come and to not leave us as orphans. As we are reminded and and stirred up this morning about these things, God, help us to look to you. Help us to live our lives sold out for you, to live in this world in such a way that those around us would see the truth of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dig into this passage, it's helpful to look a little bit at the context of where we are in John's gospel. In John chapter 13 to 17, we commonly call this the upper room discourse. It's kind of one big section. And here we're zoomed in. It's a zoomed in picture of the events surrounding Jesus, the Last Supper, uh, with his disciples. And the other gospel writers only give kind of a few paragraphs to this this time period and these events, but John takes us with him into the upper room and he invites us to sit with him and the other disciples. And he wants us to experience the intimacy of this evening. As Jesus washes the disciples' feet and predicts Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, as he tells them about the coming of the helper, the Holy Spirit, as he tells them to abide in him as branches of the true vine, And as he prays the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, where we see the intimacy between Jesus and his Father, and we see Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for us. It's five incredible, action-packed chapters. And it's probably one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. And as we're going through 1 John over the next 13 weeks, beginning next week, I would encourage you to take some time, if you can and go and read John 13 to 17, this upper room discourse, and see some of the common themes that we're going to be seeing in 1 John. I think this will help you to kind of better understand what John is saying in the epistle of 1 John, kind of given the context here of the gospel of John. There's a a book called The Inner Sanctuary uh, by a guy named Charles Ross, who was a 19th century Scottish minister. Uh, It's based on his sermons from John chapter 13 to 17. And he spends the whole first chapter of his book explaining just one verse. John chapter 13 verse 1, which reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Ross argues that this verse, the beginning of this upper room discourse, he argues that this verse is paradigmatic, meaning it kind of sets up this whole 
upper room discourse. This kind of gives us a framework for understanding these five chapters. And he focuses in on the words, his own, where it says that Jesus had loved his own who were in the world. Listen to what he says. His people are his own in a sense peculiar to themselves. His own in a sense in which others are not. His own as given him by the Father, as purchased with his precious blood, and as being called by his Spirit. His own as being the members of his mystical body, and therefore standing in a nearer relation to him than angel or archangel. O happy people, whom the Lord of glory regards as his own, his jewels, his peculiar treasure, his crown of rejoicing. I wonder, Christians, do we feel the weight of this truth? That we are his own. That we are bought with the blood of the Lamb and sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That we are members of his body and more precious in his sight than anything else in all of creation. I think the sad reality for most of us is that we forget these truths and we fail to live in light of our true identity as those who belong to the Lord of glory. When Jesus promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to them to teach them all things and to bring to their remembrance all that he had said, he was pointing them forward to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come. He would send the Holy Spirit to fill and empower his disciples and the church to go out to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. So we're going to see three things in this passage that will encourage us as followers of Christ to live lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and enabled to be his witnesses in this world. If you're taking notes, here's the three things we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the promise of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Promise, presence, and provision. In verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. Those who love God are called to obey him and keep his commandments. This is a theme that we're going to see over and over in the book of 1 John. But clearly, that is not always the way that things work out. We don't always obey God, even though it is what we ought to do and what we are called to do. We see throughout this passage that there's an emphasis on keeping Christ's commandments. Jesus explains to his disciples the relationship between obedience to God's commandments and love for God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus tells us that we love because he first loved us. So the ability to love God and to keep God's commandments comes from God himself. It's not something that we can just muster up on our own strength. It's not something that we just try harder to love God and then it will just happen. This is very important for understanding this passage here that we're looking at today and for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the world. So let's first look at the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' promises related to the coming of the Holy Spirit here in this passage are many. In verses 16 to 21, there are 10 future tense verbs. These are all future promises that Jesus was giving them as he points them forward to a day that is yet to come. 
And notice how each person of the Trinity is actively involved in the fulfillment of these promises. Verse 16, Jesus will ask the Father, and the Father will give us another helper to be with us forever. Verse 17, the Spirit will be in us. Verse 18, Jesus will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us. Verse 19, we will see him and we will live. Verse 20, in that day, which is the day of Pentecost, we will know that Jesus is in his Father and we are in him and he is in us. These promises all point us forward to what will happen when Jesus sends another helper, the Spirit of Truth. So we might see that and wonder, what does this mean, another helper? Well, the word here, helper, can also be translated as advocate or counselor. Some other translations have that. And it means someone who acts on our behalf. So Jesus says, another helper... Because he was already the disciples' advocate. He was the one who was sent to earth by the Father to be their advocate, to be their counselor, to be their helper. And now he's explaining to them that he is going away. He will be leaving, but he will not leave them alone. The other helper, the spirit of truth, will come and will be with them forever. And not only with the disciples, he will be with us forever. And there's another important meaning of the word helper. Many scholars would argue that though it's not necessarily related linguistically, it's conceptually very close to the word intercessor. In Romans 8.27, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, who is with us and lives in us, intercedes for us in prayer. And then a few verses later, he says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. In Hebrews 7.25, it also says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So the point here is that God is for us and God is with us. He has not left us to defend ourselves or to fend for ourselves, but he is actively working on our behalf. So Jesus is at the Father's right hand right now advocating and interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit is inside each and every believer right now advocating and interceding for us. So we have a helper on earth with us, in us, and we have a helper in heaven at the same time interceding for us. Praise God that he is with us. When Jesus made these promises in the upper room, his disciples didn't really fully understand what he was talking about. And we see that earlier in chapter 14. We read it too in the, in the kids' message. When Jesus tell them, tells them that he is going away to prepare a place for them, and he will come again and take them to himself, and they will know the way to where he is going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Have you ever missed something that was right in front of your face? 
I have a tendency to do this. Maybe it's a guy thing, particularly. Um, when I was in high school, I worked construction, and my uncle, maybe you know, we'd be up on the roof doing something, and my uncle would say, go in the van and get, you know, get this thing. It's right here next to this other thing. And I would go. I'd be in there for five minutes. I'd be looking everywhere. I'd go back. I can't find it. I don't know what you're talking about. He'd come down. He'd go, it's right here, right exactly where I said, and it's like right where I looked, and I just didn't see it. Or Lindsay will uh, tell me where something is at, and I will literally be staring right at it, and I just can't see it. And she comes, and it's like right in front of my face. But for whatever reason, I'm either looking for the wrong thing, or I, maybe I misunderstand the explanation, but I'm just missing what is right in front of my face. What about us? <laughs> Do we miss what is right in front of our faces? Do we fail to see the promise that has been made to us as children of the living God? That by faith, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we will see Jesus Christ and therefore we will see the Father. Do we believe that God will keep his promises to us, to dwell with us, to be with us forever, to love us? to manifest himself to us? Or are we living as the disciples did, fearing that they would have to live as orphans in this world after Jesus went away? I wish I could promise to my kids that I will never leave them as orphans. I shared a few weeks ago about not being afraid of death, not being, even from the time I was a kid, just I was never afraid to die. And now as a Christian, Knowing where I'm going, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. But the thought of, of dying as a young man, dying in the next couple years, and leaving my family, leaving my wife and children alone in this world, that's a terrifying thought. And that's okay. It's okay to, that that's a terrifying thought. I can't guarantee them that that won't happen. I can promise them that I will try to provide for them and and trust the Lord and try to lead them in his ways. But I can't promise them that I will be with them forever. I can't even promise them that I will be with them for a week or a month or a year. Because I don't know. God knows. I hope and pray that I can be with them as, as long as the Lord allows me to. But that's up to him and not up to me. And the good news is that we don't serve a God who is weak and fallible, and who will one day pass away like we will. We serve a God who makes and keeps his promises. And one of the greatest promises that we've already seen and will continue to see throughout this passage is his promise to be with us forever. We'll see that specifically as we look at the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see this theme over and over in these verses. And there's kind of an overlap between promise and presence. Verse 16, the helper will be with you forever. Verse 17, he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In verse 23, Jesus speaking of himself and the Father in relation to those that love Jesus and keep his word, he says, we will come to him and make our home with him. 
I think there's two areas in our lives that the Holy Spirit's presence with us ought to inform. The first one is our identity. So the Holy Spirit's presence with us ought to inform our identity. Until we realize who we are, we will never live out our true identity as children of the living God. If we view ourselves as orphans who have been abandoned and left without a helper, then we will never live with the hope and fullness of joy that is already ours in Christ. I want us to consider again the Ross quote that I read earlier about John 13:1 and Jesus loving his own who were in the world. He said, Oh, happy people, whom the Lord of glory regards as his own, his jewels, his peculiar treasure, his crown of rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, though we are still in this world, we are not left alone. And having our identity properly oriented, we remember that we do not belong to this world. In these verses here, there's a clear contrast between Jesus' disciples and the world. The world can't receive the Spirit because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But we know Him, verse 17. The world will see Jesus no more, but we will see Him, verse 19. Then in verse 22, Judas, it's not Judas Iscariot, he has already left to betray Jesus. He said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And that's a fair question, right? Jesus has spent three years training his disciples to do ministry and had sent them out to preach the gospel and they have seen amazing things happen. So how could it be that those in the world would no longer see Jesus manifesting himself to them. Judas's question here is not motivated by our modern demands for fairness and inclusivity. He's not saying, why will we see you and the world will not see you? Jesus, that's not fair. Instead, he's probably hoping that Jesus will manifest himself in a way that will defeat the Romans and free the Jews from oppression. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. When they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not a bad question. It's actually a consistent question for them. This is what they were hoping for. But it's misguided. Jesus responds by reminding Judas that it is those who love him and keep his word. In other words, it's those who belong to him who have been identified with him To them he will manifest himself, and he and the Father will come and make their home with him. It's an exclusive promise. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is an exclusive religion. And this is not a popular message today. What kind of response do we get in our culture when we tell people that Jesus is the only way? Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven. Oh, you're narrow-minded. You're a bigot. You're intolerant. But if it's true, if Jesus is the only way for people to have their sins forgiven, if Jesus is the only way to escape sin and hell and death, then the most loving thing that we can do is tell them. 
Why would we hold back that truth from them if it's the only way? So the presence of the Holy Spirit it informs our identity and it informs our witness. The other area that the presence of the Holy Spirit informs is our worship. When we talk about God's presence in worship, we often use big words like transcendence and imminence. When we think about God being transcendent, it means that he is not like us. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He's also H-O-L-Y, holy. But when we say holy other, it means he's, he's out there in a sense. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. He is infinitely majestic and glorious. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is a vision of God being transcendent, God being radiant, But on the other hand, we speak of God's imminence or his nearness. And that's seen here in John chapter 14 where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Where the Father and the Son come and make their home with us. In his book, Worship Matters, Bob Coughlin says, God's imminence takes on radical new meaning for Christians. God is not only with us, he actually dwells in us. In us. The ascended Christ has now sent the Holy Spirit to live inside us. The transcendent God has taken up residence in his people for his glory. And that knowledge is a constant source of wonder, gratefulness, and comfort. Let me ask us this morning do we experience wonder, gratefulness, and comfort as we gather together to worship the living God? Or have Sunday mornings just become routine and monotonous? Are we just going through the motions when we gather here together? Have you and I lost our sense of wonder at who God is and what he has done for us in coming to be with us and dwell in us? You may have... If, any John Piper fans out there, you may have heard this quote before, him talking about the Grand Canyon. He says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. I got to experience this the last two weeks, waking up every morning and looking out over a balcony into the vast ocean, right? But after a while, it just kind of became routine, like, oh, there's the ocean again, right? Well, what is the cure for us if we have lost our sense of wonder at the majesty of God? The answer is to look away from ourselves. That's where we will find healing for our souls. It's not in looking inward. It's not in self-help and self-improvement. 
It's by coming here and taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them on the Lord of glory. Christian, are you resting in who you are as a child of God? Are you believing Jesus' promise to be with you forever? Are you living and worshiping in light of your true identity? Or maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you can't accept Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. Or maybe you have other reasons for not trusting in Jesus. I hope that if you do have questions or you have objections, that you would come and speak with me or you'd speak with someone else who is a follower of Jesus. Talk with them about your questions and your concerns. We desire for you to belong to Christ to live for him, to follow him, and for the God of the universe to come and to make his home with you. In his comments on these verses in the inner sanctuary, Charles Ross says, None shall dwell with God in heaven with whom God does not first dwell on earth. None shall dwell with God in heaven, future, with whom God does not first dwell on earth, present. Let this be a challenge to all of us. It's not enough to say, I'm saved from my sins and I'll enjoy being in the presence of God when I get to heaven. You can have fellowship and communion with him here and now. That's what you were designed for. But how is that possible? Let's take a look at the last part of this chapter as we see the provision of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes a connection between the things that he taught to his disciples while he was physically present and the things that the Holy Spirit would teach them after he went away. Pay attention to the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in these verses. I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So here's the first element of provision. Teaching them and bringing to remembrance everything that he said to them. While we can claim this promise today in one sense, I think we need to recognize this in its historical context and significance. Though Jesus doesn't explicitly say it here, I believe this is a very strong argument for both the authority and the accuracy of the New Testament scriptures. Some people try to make an argument against the four Gospels because of the fact that they were written anywhere from 20 to 60 years after Jesus' death. But if the role of the Holy Spirit was to bring to the disciples' remembrance everything that Jesus said and did, then the arguments about the length of time before those things were written down are irrelevant. The whole point is that their ability to accurately remember Jesus' words didn't depend on them having great memories in old age. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural activity. Part of the Holy Spirit's provision, both then and now, is seen in the fact that we have this book, that we can read Jesus' own words, that we can read the words written down by his followers. 
Maybe you don't believe what the Bible says. Maybe you think it's simply words of made up by man for other people. If that's true, then it's okay to, to doubt it, if that's what it is. But if it is the word of God for man, then you ought to reconsider your position and your opposition. The preser- preservation of the Bible is not just a great accomplishment on the part of humans. We don't say, man, those, those guys who rolled up those scrolls and carried them with them and preserved them and kept them, they're the heroes of the Bible, right? No. Or the people who translate into all these other languages. It's great things that are done, but they're not the heroes. The preservation of the, God, of the Bible is God's great accomplishment in order that we might know him and live for him. The other element of the provision of the Holy Spirit is the peace of Christ. In Mark 4, Jesus was asleep in a boat during a storm, and his disciples woke him up because they were afraid for their lives. Jesus spoke three simple words. Peace, be still. And the storm stopped, and there was great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says they were filled with fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This was their Grand Canyon moment. They experienced peace and awe in the presence of the one who created and has control over all things. In John 21, after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples who were hiding behind locked doors because they were afraid, his first words were, peace be with you. Then he showed them his hands and his side, and again he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And it's hard to imagine that at that moment, they didn't think back to just a couple days earlier here in the upper room where Jesus promised to give them his peace. And perhaps they were reminded of the command that Jesus gave to them. In this whole chapter, chapter 14, there are only two verbs that are imperatives, that are commands. Two things that Jesus tells his disciples they must not do. They're actually negative commands. Do not... Let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Among all the promises, those are the only things that Jesus commands his disciples to do. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Oh, how they needed to hear those words and be reminded of those words over the course of events that would take place over the next few days and weeks. And oh, how we need to hear them today. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Christian. Do not let your hearts be afraid. Everywhere we turn in this world, there are promises of false peace. There are empty promises of places we can run to and places we can go for peace. When we lived in Beijing in 2008 during the Summer Olympics, The theme was, one world, one dream. And one of the stated goals of the International Olympic Committee is to promote peace. 
I love sports. I love watching the Olympics. But we're not going to unite the world through sports competitions. Okay? I have a hard enough time when I'm playing competitive sports trying to be at peace with sometimes even my own teammates, but the other team, right? Like, that's not what's going to bring the world together. I'm not against sports being used to bring people together because I think it's something that can do that. But if the things like sports and other things are not ultimately centered on Christ, then they will just leave us feeling empty and let us down. Just turn on the news or open your news app and scroll through a few articles and it won't take you long to realize that all the human efforts at promoting peace are not working. The peace that we need, the only peace that matters is peace with God. And that peace is only found through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through his sacrificial death on our behalf that has the power not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another and to bring true peace in this world. Again, if you're here with us today and you are not yet a Christian, I want to plead with you. Christ alone is the only place where you can find true peace. Turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins and for peace both in this life and in the life to come. Don't leave here this morning until you have done business with God. For the Christian, where do you need the peace of Christ in your life? What is troubling you today? What are you afraid of? Maybe it's the unrest in the world. Maybe you're afraid what your future or the future for your children or the future for your grandchildren will look like in this world. Or maybe it's just the day-to-day grind of your life that feels out of control. You're like the disciples asleep on the boat or behind locked doors living in fear. You feel like God is a million miles away from you, so you've just thrown up your hands and decided to do nothing. Or maybe you're searching for peace in the wrong places. You're looking to finances, looking to job security, You're looking to relationships. Maybe you've given up trusting in the Lord altogether. We're going to take some time for some silent prayer before we sing our last song. Let's go to God. Let's ask him to help us believe his promises. To know that he is with us. That he is present with us through the helper, the Holy Spirit. And that he will keep his promises by continuing to provide for us his peace in the midst of the storms of life in this world. Let's go before the Lord for a few moments.